putting all the pieces in place of creation in Genesis 1. Now, last week, we began this study by taking a look at the first three days. We're going to look at the second three days. So we're going to look at four, five, and six today. And uh, the, um, uh, the conclusion that we reach is that either, either the building blocks of creation are eternally existing, impersonal stuff, goop, matter, or either that, or um, our, two, our other choice is that there's an eternally existing personal being. It, we call him God. And he creates all these things out of nothing. The Bible gives us that perspective. Okay? Now, uh, you know kind of where I land in this. But in some ways, doesn't it require, either way requires faith, doesn't it? Uh, it, it to me, it requires less faith to believe in a God who's organizing all this and manipulating all this than it is to believe that it just happens uh, randomly. You know, the, the, the old story is if you uh, had a million monkeys with a million bricks and they had a million charges of dynamite and they blew it up enough times, would they eventually create the Taj Mahal? If you want to believe in that, I'm, a, yeah, I'm okay with you believing in that. I just can't quite buy it, okay? So that's option one. Option two is there's a God who organizes all of it. The design implies a designer, doesn't it? I think. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. Now, in, in, let me review just for a second here the three days of creation that we talked about last time. Day one was the creation of life, light, and the separation of darkness from light. We talked about the, this really the spiritual implications as well. Today we'll talk about the physical implications of that. Day two, um, we were told of the creation of a vault or a separating point um, uh, that separates a barrier that separates the water above it from the water below it. And then on day three, we see the emergence of dry land, the separation of those things, and the furnishing of this land with vegetation. And uh, we made the point that, uh, and we'll see this again in the teaching today, uh, we made the point that, that God said, uh, let this vegetation come forth according to its kind. There were no pluots in God's original creation. If you don't know what a pluot is, they sell them at Sam's, I think. And at Crest, okay. They sell them in the grocery store. But it's, it's a confusing little fruit to me. It's a plum and an apricot, I think. Or is there something else in there? Ugh. You know, it's just, okay. Uh, when I got to Florida, when I was in school, they were selling tangelos, which is neither a tangerine nor a orange. I guess, you know, I don't know. Okay, so there wasn't any of that. It was everything according to its kind. You know, and we're going to talk about that when we get to the, the rest of this. So let's go to day four, all right? Let's go to day four, which begins with verse 14. We kind of closed that with day 13, uh, verse 13, uh, last time. Uh, Mr. Blair, can I get you to read 14 down through 19? God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the 
Just a lot in, in this little passage right here that we need to drill down on. So let me do my best to get started on it. Um, now, the deal is here, um, um, God has created light. Some, even theologians will say that what's being talked about in those first couple of verses that we looked at last week is the creation of energy. Um, that's okay, that's okay. But the idea here is if he created light itself in, 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 in the, the first couple of days of creation we took, talked about last week, here he's creating lights, plural, okay? So he created, he's already created light, now he's creating lights, all right? Uh, we'll talk about that just, just for a minute here. Um, uh, what I don't want you to get um, uh, particularly uh, nervous about how this is, is described, because remember, this is not intended to be a science textbook. It's amended, intended to be uh, a, a book that, uh, where God reveals himself to us. And so uh, part of that revelation is telling us that God did this and he's spoken into existence and all those things. John, can I get you to go to Psalm 104, 19? It, it will, it, that's not on your outline, but I want us to read that in just a second. So the, the idea here is, as you read uh, verse 14 or so in through here, uh, what you encounter here is cycles of illumination. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, I think it's interesting if you study, um, if, if you read in the paper or, or see on a documentary or, or read about it in some of your study, see where astronauts go into space, they keep themselves, even while light is different uh, in space, they keep themselves on a 24-hour cycle because we're just kind of made that way. Our earth is made that way. Our world is made that way. So um, here's kind of where... It, it's the idea of it. This 24-hour cycle of illumination of the earth. And uh, in addition to that, there's an implication here of, of not only those that 24-hour rotation, but there's an indication here a little bit of what the moon is doing, months. Uh, there's a little bit of an indication of uh, this cycle, this year cycle, which is 364 and a quarter days, okay? It's all talked about here. Um, um, and there's the thought here that there are seasons that cause us to pause and worship, to do some particular things. Uh, John, would you mind to read, um, what did I say, 104.19, Psalm 104.19? The moon marks the season. So um, we look at the phases of the moon. We look at all those things. You know, um, uh, October 23rd, 1955. Okay. You're going to know in a minute why I know that date. October 23rd, 1955. My mother went to church and some little lady said, the moon is full tonight. And I was born the next day. Okay. Okay, it, this lady had watched a harvest moon of some kind, and, you know, mom told me that story my whole life. Uh, that some little lady, you know, told her the moon's full. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm sure you have no trouble believing that I was born in a, under a full moon, right? Okay. 
so that there's this, these, so there, there are cycles here that are built in to the way this earth and the universe is created. But there's also a cycle, and I put a couple of references here, we won't go to them, but there, I put a couple of references in here about, about um, how even, even in, uh, remember Moses is writing this, later on he's going to write, uh, um, put in the law this thought of we need to stop several times a year and celebrate. Uh, they become causes. Uh, the calendar, in some ways, is created by God here. Uh, we, we measure it in different ways uh, over throughout history. But the calendar itself, what happens with the calendar, uh, was kind of created by God here. Are you noticing? It's barely September, and Christmas stuff is coming. You know, when did they start putting... Uh, when did they start putting Halloween stuff out in July? I don't, you know, but they do that now. Okay, so um, we mark these celebrations of the year, and they're a good thing, but they're part of this, um, they're part of the way that the kind of the world is set up. Okay, look at verse 15. Now, what I want you to catch here is that the lighting of the world is a testimony that God cares for us, okay? So the idea here is um, um, I get up in the morning and I wonder. There's the, that word just kind of is, is woven through the fabric. Even though it's not here, it ought to be. In, in some ways, it ought to be, it ought to cause you and I to jaw drop and wonder at the creation of God. And when the sun comes up in the morning, we ought to wonder at that and say, God loves me. He cares for me. He gave us another day, another sun, uh, those kinds of things. Now, you and I know scientifically that, those, that, that, that this um, um, is all a part of the pattern. But the idea here is the more that... Uh, Steve, I'm gonna, can I get you, before you leave, to go to Romans 1. I'm going to get you to read verse 19 and 20 in just a minute. The more science learns about sunlight, the more we realize our dependence on the sun for life. So when I see it in the morning, or even when I see it setting, and we know the, what's going on there. We, scientifically enough, we know what's going on there. I ought to thank God and say, wow. Um, you care for me. Uh, this is what Genesis 1 gives us kind of a hint to. Uh, Steve, read about creation a little bit. Uh, uh, Paul kind of dealing with uh, the Roman Christians kind of uh, helps us deal with this idea of creation, what it ought to do to us. I think it's very interesting that early on, early on, Paul is saying, you know what, if you just look around you, you really don't have an excuse to believe in the creative God. 
Isn't that interesting? Uh, listen to what Jesus says about himself. This idea of light and life. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's this idea that even by the time Jesus gets here, uh, he identifies with this light and life issue here. So the lighting of our world is a testimony to God's care for us. It can be observed. Now what I want you to catch, here's what goes in your next uh, blank here before we get to verse 16. The descriptions that we have in the first couple of chapters of Genesis are observational. Okay? They're observational. They're what can be observed. All right? They're observational. They're not intended to be, in particular, uh, particularly scientific. But what's wonderful about this is the, is the more that we drill down on science, the more that these things are all proven to be true. If you have the eyes to see it, okay, and the heart to see it. Now, now look at verse 16. It's talking there about, um, it continues to talk here about the sun and the moon and the stars. Somebody read verse 16 again. Okay, so there's this thought here that there are three classifications of light, uh, three classes, the sun and the moon and the stars. Okay, now now you and I in, in our enlightened day have a little trouble with thinking God just flung the stars out there just so that we'd have something to look at at night. Okay, um, uh, it was interesting right after class I talked to Lynette along a little bit last week who's a mathematician and um, she was telling me to... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just referenced briefly the, the Hubble telescope. She said, you know, they're replacing that thing. And I previously wasn't aware of that. So I looked up the James Webb telescope. Anybody familiar with what I'm talking about? In 21, they're putting another telescope in space. So you can go to, I'm, I pulled this off of NASA.com, okay? Uh, or NASA.gov, anyway, it's one or the other. Yeah, NASA.gov, um, Okay. It will complement and extend the discoveries of the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, the longer wavelength that this, this new telescope will have will enable Webb to look much closer to the beginning. This is interesting to me. This is, uh, is NASA.gov. You paid for this. Okay, here we go. Um, the longer wavelengths enable Webb to look much closer to the beginning of time and to hunt for the unobserved formation of the first galaxies. Okay. Now, I, I find this incredible here. It, its mission goals are, include searching for the first galaxies or luminous objects formed after the Big Bang. You paid for that, okay? Determine how galaxies evolved in their formation until now. Okay, so that kind of stuff, lots of measurements. It's going into place in 21. Now, my understanding is that it is, uh, Hubble sits 560-some miles out in space. This Jesse is going to sit 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. It'll take it a while to get there, I'm guessing, right? Okay. Now, it's going to be the, the mirrors on it that make it work are primarily made from beryllium coated with gold. 
Okay? Now remember, it's out there searching for the origins of the universe. Aren't they going to be surprised? Well, my question is, well, you know, they were surprised with Hubble. With Hubble, when Hubble got there, they previously thought that the universe was oscillating. Did you know that? That it kind of expanded, contracted, expanded, contracted. And they got out there and they realized. Now they started doing all these calculations from the pictures they got from Hubble to realize that they're that the universe is expanding infinitely. And so they began to reason backwards and think, okay, if it's expanding, that means it had to have started somewhere. Duh, Genesis one. If there was a big bang, you and I believe we know who pulled the trigger. Okay? Don't ask Joe about pulling the trigger. He had trouble with that this week. Now, isn't it interesting? This thing, that what makes this thing work is made out of beryllium coated with gold. I want to write to them and say, so who made the gold? Where'd you get the beryllium? Did you guys make that stuff too? Don't think so. That was there. Somebody had to make it. You know him. I do too. Okay, so you kind of get this idea here. All right, now, look at verse 17 and 18. Just kind of scan it here. So all of these, these heavenly lights, are in place to counteract darkness so that we are never without a heavenly light source. You've never been without a heavenly light source. In fact, it's such a rarity when that they mark it as an eclipse. Everybody goes outside and burns their retinas trying to look at it, okay? Because we're never without a heavenly light source. Again, that kind of indicates the care of God here. Um, uh, the, the, the idea here is that these things in our sky testify to the presence of God in the world. Uh, would somebody mind to kind of trip over to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5? I think I put that reference on here. We just want to hear what, what Paul has to say to these people, these uh, previously pagan people that he's talking to, um, uh, about this issue. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. That's almost the end of your New Testament. Anybody there yet? We don't belong to the darkness. And one of the ways God just kind of reminds us of that is you've never had to live in darkness. Physically. Astronomically. Now, uh, the word that I used last week is what we're trying to develop here is, a, is an effective and appropriate biblical cosmology. What you believe about how things began. Okay, now, I want you to look, this is interesting to me, look at 822. Now, this is going to be a reference to after the flood that's discussed in the Bible. So it's going to come uh, generations later. But, but there's an interesting thing that is just kind of, this is after the flood. Um, some things are just talked about here. Eight, somebody read 822. It's set off almost like a poem in my Bible. I don't know if it is uh, in yours or not. Somebody read it, 822. Isn't that beautiful? Now just remember, he says, 
Remember, there's a pattern to all this. The word I wanted to put in your, your uh, outline is the word rhythm. There's a rhythm, a wonderful rhythm to God's creation, a cycle. Now, interestingly, if you look at verse um, 19, it's worded not quite the way that you and I would word it, but it's worded the way that the Jews would word it, or the ancient Israelis or Hebrews. Uh, look at verse 19. It's going to say, um, as it's describing this fourth day, there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Now, that's, the, the Jews took that as a pattern for the way they discussed their day. So um, to a Jewish person, uh, to a Hebrew person, uh, it wouldn't be uh, how many days and nights you're going to go. It would be how many nights and days you're going to be there. It would be, uh, so the idea is uh, each day for them began with sundown. The setting sun, it's kind of the way they thought about it. The setting sun ends the old day and the rising sun begins the new day. Um, so they would say a night and a day, or we, whereas we say a day and a night. Interesting, isn't it? Now, the point that I'm trying to make here is that God has made this earth, this universe. He's created it with a rhythm to it. My question to you is, have you discovered a rhythm to your life? Have you put in place a rhythm to your life? If you ignore it, you will do so to your peril. Things like, for instance, uh, we're going to get to the end of day six. You remember on day seven, God rested. Do you have a Sabbath in the rhythm of your life? For probably 30 or so years of ministry, I really kind of ignored that. Because I worked on Sunday, still do. But I had to discover there had to be a rhythm. There's got to be there got to be a day when I don't do a whole lot of work, uh, of the kind of work that I do here, or in my office, because God made it that way. There's a He made this earth with a rhythm. He made you with a rhythm. Are you ignoring it? Okay. Or are you uh, learning from it, leaning into it? Those kinds of things. So. Let's go into the next little section. Miss Cindy, can I get you to read 20 down through 23? We're going to look at day five. All right. Okay, now what's going to happen in this day, day five, is God populates himself. Okay, he speaks into being again, populates the sky and the seas. All right, populates the sky and the seas. Uh, go with me to Psalm 104. I think we were there a little bit ago. Uh, it's just a, a beautiful little description in verse 24 and 25 of Psalm 104. 
Uh, listen to this. This is good. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There's the sea great and broad in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. So uh, the Bible believes, it b believes that God populated the sky and the seas. Okay? And he does so by his word, and he does so again here according to their kind. That doesn't mean that, that you're going to uh, walk into the pet store, you're going to go to PetSmart, and say, hey, my parakeet had an eagle. Uh, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> now, why that's funny is because it's never happened, right? It's never going to happen. Why is it not happened? Why is it never going to happen? Because God made it that way. Uh, do you have a labradoodle? Okay. I know you've got a doggy, but I know. Okay. That's just stinking unnatural. Okay, that's all. Uh, but it's still a dog, Ellie, you know? It's a dog and a dog. Okay, all right. Okay, so um, you, you get the thought here, according to their kind. Now, um, so he, he populates the sky and the seas, and then he, his plan includes multiplication, okay? So he creates them, who knows in what number. That detail is not, uh, not given us, but in whatever number, they're they're supposed to multiply. Now, uh, you can look again at chapter 8 after the flood, and he once again says, be fruitful and multiply. So there's kind of that same thought here in the animal kingdom. Um, part of this issue is there is a created order to things. He made them the way they're supposed to be. There is an order to things. God's created order sometimes it's called. And uh, Roger, you'll like this. You're going to like my next word for verse 23. Verse 23 says, the sustaining earth has been stocked. Roger loves to go to stocked lakes. Don't you, buddy? Yes. Mm -hmm. Or even better, a stocked farm pond. That's the best place to find a largemouth, right? So in a stocked farm pond. Well, the earth has been stocked, but there's something missing. What's missing at the end of day five? People. We're going to deal with that one next week, by the way. He's going to say at the end of day six, he's going to say, okay, wait a minute. This is really good. This is beautiful. I've got to bring some people here. But um, at the end of day five, there's nothing on the land. Okay? In the sea and in the sky, nothing in the land. So that's where we're going to go. Um, Cindy, can I come back to you to read verse 24 and 25? Living with the person with whom I live is like living with King Solomon. Let me explain, okay? I'm on the patio this week, and there's a dragonfly on the patio. I said, huh, a dragonfly. I get a, a full scientific lecture on dragonflies at 6 o'clock in the morning. But don't you love that? You remember how... Queen of Sheba and other people came from all over the earth 
uh, to come see King Solomon because he knew all these scientific things and you know had all he was he was he was big into botany and biology and and, and evidently uh, you're big into uh, what would that be bugology. bugology that's good enough that's good enough even as an arachnophobe she has okay so so she starts telling me all these things about dragonflies now now think about what a dragonfly looks like it's got four wings by by the way. One of the things that Mrs. Solomon told me is that uh, that they had all the four wings work independently. How cool is that? There's no helicopter to do that, as far as I know. Uh, independent. They can anyway. Dragonflies are flat out terrifying. I read this. If you're a gnat, they don't simply chase down their prey. Instead, they snag them from the air with calculated aerial ambushes. Dragonflies can judge the speed and trajectory of a prey target and adjust their flight to intercept prey. I'm loving this. They're so skilled that they have up to a 95% success rate when hunting. Let's pray. Yeah. Um, I have no idea about that rate. Okay. Success rate. Now listen to this. This comes from the New York Times. So if it comes out of the New York Times, it's got to be true, right? Okay. One research team has determined that the nervous system of a dragonfly displays an almost human capacity for selective attention, able to focus on a single prey as it flies amid a cloud of similarly fluttering insects, just as a guest at a party can attend to a friend's words while ignoring the background chatter. Other researchers have identified a kind of master circuit of 16 neurons that connect the dragonfly's brain to its flight motor center in the thorax. With the aid of that neuronal package, a dragonfly can track a moving target, calculate a trajectory to intercept that target, and adjust subtly its path as needed. As a rule, the hunted remains clueless until it's all over. That's a dragonfly. Now, I, I want us to deal with this a little bit because uh, there are things here that God creates that are beyond marveling. Okay, so three kind of classes here. God uh, creates, okay, I'm going to give you three things. Livestock, and I put uh, a couple of references in Leviticus 11, 4 and 25, verse 7. Livestock, so livestock is that which they're later told they can eat of those. Okay, Livestock, wild, and creeping animals. Okay, That's what's described here in verse 24 and 25. Now, I, so livestock, wild animals, creeping animals. So livestock are those that are herded and eaten. Wild animals are those that are not herded, some of them may be eaten, but typically they're not in, in Jewish law. Um, the basic idea there is when you're thinking about what that class uh, or group of animals is talking about is I have never seen a bear farm. There's nobody that, oh, I've got a herd of bear. No, they don't do that. Not even Colorado. They, they do. Okay? But they herd cattle and goats and sheep and that kind of stuff. Okay? So uh, that's the wild animals. All right? And then... A really interesting Hebrew word describes the third class. Uh, I'm going to use I'm going to use the word creeping here, animals, because that's kind of what the scriptures say. Didn't it say something like that? Um, 
uh, that move along the ground, okay? The Hebrew word, I don't know a whole lot of Hebrew, but I studied this particular word. The Hebrew word that's used for creeping animals, or the, those that move along the ground, you know, the Hebrews had a way of, of pronouncing things really funny anyway. And um, the word from the Hebrew is, you, you ready for it? It was, it's... <clears throat> <laughs> they, they would say it just like that. That's not true, by the way, but, but you get the point. You get the point. Now, creeping things. Um, so, God looks at all that. Okay, so there's the skies are filled, the seas are filled. Now the earth is filled with, uh, with herded animals, with wild animals, with even <clears throat> creepy animals, okay? All right? And he says, it's all good. It's all good. There would be no life without God's provision if he didn't provide for it. Now, I was in either Mississippi or Alabama. It was May. And uh, it was early one morning and my little traveling companion was asleep. And um, it was just one of those pretty sunrises, you know. And um, I began to sing this song. By the way, part of this series comes from what happened to me on that particular early morning. Um, it, was a, it was a poem that has 14 stanzas, believe it or not, 14 four-line stanzas, which is incredible, from back in uh, the late 1800s, written by a guy, uh, Malt Maltby Badcock, who, who was born, uh, actually, this is in the early 20th century. He died at 42. He was, a, he was a pastor in upstate New York, and he began to look at creation around him, and he wrote these words. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. The birds, their carols raise. Oh, what beautiful picturesque language. The morning light, the lily white declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. And this is the one that caught me as I'm just remembering the text in my head while I'm driving. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. I, I just got to ask you this. Are you allowing him to speak to you through his creation? You know he wants to. You know that according to what we read just a little bit ago in Romans 1, the creation in its order and its intricacy should just tell you he's there. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. By the way, Dr. Skip Hall, sometimes the rustling grass has a snake in it. So you want to be careful with that. But typically, even in the rustling grass, if you have eyes of faith to see, you can see him pass.
God bless you. I'm enjoying this study.